Okay. I love the postprandial spot, don't you? We can all take a nap. But instead of taking a nap, let's do my favorite thing in the world, which is opioid conversion calculations. How fun is this? I still don't have anything to disclose. I did not get in trouble over lunch, <sighs> although I very possibly could. All right, we're going to talk about the rationale for why we need to do this, to switch a patient from either one dosage formulation to a different one, to a different, from a different route of administration, or from one opioid to another, regardless of the dosage formulation and route of administration. We're going to talk about my awesome equianalgesic dosing chart and why it's not set in concrete. It's more like a, a strongly worded suggestion. We're going to talk about different ways to do these conversions and then some of the barriers and some of the limitations in doing this. All right, so I think... I've captured most of the reasons why we would feel the need to do a switch. Um, certainly a lack of therapeutic response from one opioid and you want to try a different one. We all know that this is a, opioid therapy is a huge field for pharmacogenomic implications. Development of adverse effects, change in patient status. So this is a very common one. If you work in a hospital and you're going to send the patient home, maybe you want to switch from parenteral to oral. Uh, I have a home-based hospice patient who's on oral therapy. They get into trouble having pain crisis. We're going to send them inpatient. You're probably going to want to switch to parenteral. They can't swallow. Maybe we'll do transdermal. Maybe we'll do rectal. Um, other considerations, opioid and formulation availability, all the very cool new opioid abuse deterrent formulations that are on the market, they're sexy, but they're expensive. So in my home hospice patients, for example, we, our workhorse drugs are methadone and generic long-acting morphine. So we try 90% of the time to use those products. Uh, so formulary issues, of course. Health and family beliefs. Uh, so, you know, my, my hospice nurses laugh at me when I'll say, why are we doing such and such? And they laugh at me and say, because the family wants to do it that way. Okay, who's in charge? That would be the family, so don't even think you are. Some people call this opioid rotation. Some people call it substitution. I think it's more of a switching. If you're just going from one to the other to switching, rotation to me implies a couple, three, four switches, and it may come to that. I don't care what you call it, it will be an opioid conversion calculation. I do think when you're doing this, you should seize the teachable moment. I mean, I'm a teacher, so this is really important to me. Explaining why you're doing this to patients, to families, to your colleagues, anybody you can you know, get to listen to you, you should explain it. Hopefully it'll be improved pain management, uh, to enhance adherence, and better patient outcomes. So certainly explaining why the heck we're doing this. Some terms we need to be familiar with in this whole science of opioid conversion calculations is opioid responsiveness, the degree of analgesia achieved as the dose is titrated to an endpoint defined either by intolerable side effects or the occurrence of acceptable analgesia. So that's how responsive a patient is to a given dose of a given opioid. Potency is how much bang do you get for your buck, the intensity of the analgesic effect. So it's, you can't say that Dilaudid is a better drug than morphine. All you can say is hydromorphone is more potent on a milligram per milligram basis than morphine. So that's why you have to take that into consideration. So if we look at two drugs that have the same equivalency from a potency perspective, that's where we talk about equipotent doses giving you an equianalgesic effect, hopefully. And that's where this whole practice of equianalgesic dosing comes from. And I have to tell you, this is really controversial. You will hear national speakers say, we should throw this whole conversion thing out the window. You should taper somebody off their first opioid and start from scratch like they're opioid naive with your new opioid. I personally don't subscribe to that because I think people are going to suffer if we do that, but I am a card-carrying, board-certified, PhD-prepared weenie when it comes to doing these calculations. I'm very conservative with the scheduled, and I'm insanely generous with breakthrough because I don't want anybody to suffer because I worry about those sorts of things. Now, of course, we always have to consider bioavailability. That's the main thing we consider when you're staying with the same opioid 
opioid, but just switching the route of administration. So, for example, morphine is only about 30% bioavailable um, because of the first pass effect. The first time through the liver, if you take oral morphine, the liver gets terribly excited and metabolizes a huge chunk of that drug. So only about 30 to 40% of the morphine makes it out alive of the liver so it can go throughout the bloodstream, the whole body, and bind to the opioid receptors. Hydromorphone's about 50%, although you'll see this huge range, and most conversion charts make it more of a four-to-one with morphine, which is really interesting, or a four-to-one with oral and parenteral. Oxycodone has a high bioavailability, but 80%. Oxymorphone, very poor at 10%. Now, this is the famous equianalgesic chart. Everybody and their mother has a favorite. Um, I would just argue, please use one that's fair balance. You, you're certainly welcome to use the one I came up with. Um, the CDC has one. The American Pain Society has one. I would encourage you not to use one that's provided by the pharmaceutical industry because they are giving you an equianalgesic chart that, to guide you to convert to their product, and they're being very conservative in helping you to do that. So it's not meant to be used in reverse of converting off their product because that would make it perhaps too aggressive. And they're very clear about that. This is only to be used to convert to our product. So I would use a more fair balance one. So the way this works is everything in the parenteral column is kind of sort of equipotent. Everything in the oral column is kind of sort of equipotent. And every, anything along a row is about the same. So if I give you 10 milligrams of parenteral morphine and you, what's really interesting is if I give you 10 milligrams of parenteral morphine today and that's it and we all come back next week this time, I would actually have to give you 60 milligrams of oral morphine to get the same effect. And if you look long, long ago at these charts, it used to say 10 of morphine parenteral was 60 oral. But what we found out very quickly is the contribution of the morphine 6-glucuronide metabolite, which is pharmacologically active and contributes to the analgesic effect. So once you hit steady state, it more is a 10 to 30 or a 1 to 3 ratio. And you can go across rows and columns. You can say 10 milligrams of parental morphine is kind of sort of 7.5 milligrams of oral hydromorphone, for example. Now, the key to these charts is, I mean, I work really hard to try to get the very best evidence possible, as did the CDC and the American Pain Society and everybody else, to make this as accurate as possible. But when you think about where did this data come from, some of them are for single-dose studies, some are for multi-dose studies, some are skinny people, some are fluffy people, young people, old people. So I say that, you know, my pharmacy students look at this and say, yay, drug math is one right answer. Not so much. This is sort of like, well, this is ballpark. And then once you get the ballpark answer, then you have to put your clinical head on and decide where you really want to go with this. And one thing that has always made me crazy since I wrote the first edition of the book where this came from is if you do the conversion um, from an oral opioid to transdermal fentanyl and then back again, and you think about going from transdermal fentanyl to IV fentanyl versus going from IV morphine to parenteral fentanyl here, you get two different numbers, but they should be the same number. So theoretically, in the fentanyl column for parenteral, to be equivalent to what we know, it should be about 0.3. But what we also know is we have a high degree of unreliability in the accumulation of fentanyl because it's a very fat-soluble drug. So I have chosen to remain conservative and go 0.1 to 0.2 because you can always go up. You can't take it back. Okay, so again, lots of issues with these charts. You know, take them for what they're worth. They're a huge benefit. But again, this is why I, um, Dr. Feuden did a lovely job with the opioid conversion calculator through practical pain management. They asked me to do it, and I said, no, thank you. So they, they had Dr. Feuden do it. I don't agree with those apps. I don't like those apps. What's the problem with apps? 
apps, you turn your brain off. I mean, I had a student on rotation, and the nurse wanted to convert from one thing to another. So I turned to my student, I said, do the math. Let me know what you come up with. And he plugs and chugs on his little app and says, wow. I said, what wow? He said, came out to a million milligrams of morphine. I said, really? <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on that? He said, well, we're going to have to order more morphine. <laughs> Dude, do you think that looks right? I mean, where is our sense of does that look right to you or did you screw up using the app? So the apps, you know, let you turn off your brain and you have to have a good sense of does that look right to me? Also, the charts don't consider patient-specific variable and what really blows my mind is if you look at morphine and hydromorphone, one way it's like three to one, the other way it's like five to one, so we sort of call it a four to one. So it's not bi-directional 100%. All right, this is the process that I have used for years and years and years, and it stood me in very good stead. It is in your best interest not to skip a step. First, when somebody asks me to do a conversion, and I make my nurses nuts because I'll start asking questions about the patient. Ask, tell me about the pain, because sometimes the answer is, we don't have to switch from morphine to oxycodone. Just add a steroid, because the patient has screaming metastatic bone pain, or whatever the situation may be. So now you decide you're gonna move forward with the conversion. You wanna calculate the total daily dose of the current opioid, both long-acting and short-acting. If they're taking you short-acting PRN, you have to get some pretty accurate data. If you don't know how much they're using of the short-acting, don't include it in your calculation. So you want to be conservative, but you want to try to have reliable data. Then decide which opioid and which route of administration you're going to switch to. You look at the conversion table, and IM, IV, and sub-Q are all in the parental column. They're close enough for government work, although an IM analgesic, in my opinion, should be voted off the island. You do the math, it's a simple ratio. People get hysterical when doing drug math. I don't understand it. If, if doing this simple ratio makes you want to froth at the mouth, call a third grader, they'll do it for you. I mean, the reason you get the big bucks is steps number four and five. So you come up with this magical number, what are you gonna do with it? You could run with it, you could increase it, or you could decrease it. Now, of course, part of that's gonna be driven by what tablet strength does this come in, or whatever you're switching to. But a lot of it has to do with the data you collected in step number one. Is the patient in pain or am I switching because of a side effect? You have to take all that into consideration. And probably the most important step is step five. I mean, you can't just do this math and walk away. So you're going to do the math, institute your plan, and monitor your patient like crazy. So important. All right, so let's put you to work right away. Here we go. BJ is a 42-year-old man with chronic low back pain, getting long-acting oral morphine, 45Q12 around the clock. Now, don't forget, these case examples are for the purposes of the math, so don't jump on me about the therapeutics, okay? He was admitted to the hospital for back surgery. What would be an equivalent dosage regimen of IV morphine? Talk to the person next to you. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Okay, who's got an answer for me? I got it. Who, who said A? There you go. So that's exactly right. So he's getting 45Q12, that's 90. What did we say? 30 milligrams of oral morphine is 10 milligrams per annual, so that's 30 milligrams of perennial. So 5Q4 would be the equivalent of 30 milligrams per annual per day. Very good. So when we look at these conversions, we can talk about all these different scenarios. Same opioid from one different one oral formulation to a different oral one, from one route to a different route, from one opioid to a different one, and then there's all the transdermal calculations with fentanyl and buprenorphine. Let's look at an easy peasy one. 84-year-old man in a long-term care facility with general debility, which we're not allowed to use as a hospice diagnosis anymore. Apparently, we're not allowed to have general debility or fail to thrive anymore. CMS has said no more failure to thrive. 
So you have to thrive right till you drop dead. Oxycodone, acetaminophen tablets, taking six a day. Everything's coming up roses, pain's well controlled, but now he can't swallow the tablet. So the physician asked you to convert him to the oral solution of 5325 per ml. Now, obviously, you don't even have to pick up your pencil for this. Although, while I strongly encourage mental math, I think you still need to pick up the pencil to check yourself. And the other point I like to make with this very simple case is when I'm doing these calculations off of a combination analgesic, I disregard the contribution of the acetaminophen. For one thing, I love the literature that's come from the Scandinavian countries looking at, you know, in that country, it used to be if you had cancer pain, they would put you on an opiate and automatically everybody and their mother would get four grams of acetaminophen. I don't care how much opiate you were getting until finally somebody said, you know, the people are getting a lot of opioid. What is the acetaminophen really bringing to the table? So they did these really fancy studies, several of them, and figured out when you're up to about 70 milligrams a day of oral morphine, people can't tell the difference with or without the acetaminophen. So 70 milligrams of oral morphine is about 40 or 45 of oxycodone. So I'm not a fan of the combinations in any case because I'm stuck with the two components. But anyway, I disregarded my calculation. If you want to use it separately, you're welcome to do so. But going through the five steps, we've assessed the pain. He's stable and controlled. It is an access issue. He can't swallow the tablet. Again, I ignore the acetaminophen. Six tablets of five milligrams. My total daily dose is 30 of oral oxycodone. I'm switching to the solution, which is 5325, which is also Q4. So I'm taking my 30 milligrams and still dividing by six doses. Uh, and a common mistake my students make is I'll say Q4 and they'll divide by four, or Q6 and they'll divide by six. So remember what to divide by. Now, another important point here, step four, is we are switching from oral oxycodone to oral oxycodone. So the only thing that could possibly influence our math is what's the bioavailability of the tablet versus the oral solution, and it's about the same. So we don't have to worry about them being more sensitive to a new opioid, it's the same opioid. And then of course we'll monitor the response. Here we have a 48-year-old man with rectal cancer referred to hospice for palliative care. He's receiving hydromorphone, two milligrams every four hours, and the best his pain gets on this regimen is a six or a seven on a zero to 10 scale. He also tells you the every four hour dosing is really inconvenient, and the hydromorphone just doesn't seem to last the full four hours. You decide to recommend switching him to Exalgo, the once a day hydromorphone extended release tablet that comes eight, 12, 16, and 32 milligrams. So here's the case, he's on hydromorphone 2Q4 around the clock, his pain is a 6 or a 7, you need to switch, talk to your neighbor, decide what you're going to do. Okay, we're ready to vote. I want to see every armpit in the room. Are you ready for this? Who wants to do A? Eight milligrams once a day. Okay, I got one, two hands, three hands. How about 12 milligrams once a day? Oh, I got a lot of hands there. Who wants to go to C? 16. Just as many hands. Anybody want to go D? 20. One brave soul in the back. So, what are your rationale? Who, somebody who said eight milligrams. Want to share why? I think it was somebody over here. I bet they were thinking, you know, this long acting is going to be more efficient. I want to be conservative and see how much they really need. I'm going to give it 24, 48 hours, see how much breakthrough they use, and then I'll adjust my long acting, which is not a bad strategy. Um, but I do see where we're reducing the dose of the drug and assuming in this case that the type of pain this patient is having is responsive to hydromorphone. Of course, that goes without saying. I probably would not pick A. So who picked B? Somebody tell me why you picked B. What did you do? Why did you do that? 
Okay, so that's not an unreasonable strategy either. He's getting 12 milligrams of oral hydromorphone a day right now, right? So you could put him on the 12 milligram once a day long acting, supplement with short acting hydromorphone for breakthrough, and again in 24, 48 hours, find out how much he needs, and then switch to the correct strength of the long acting. Uh, how about who did C? Who did 16? Scott, what did you do about that? Why'd you do that? Right, so assuming this is opiate responsive pain, 12 milligrams a day of oral hydromorphone leaves him with a pain that's a six or a seven, and that's the answer I would have picked, C. Uh, you actually could have picked D, so whoever raised their hand, that, there you go. You are a big dog, oh yeah. Um, I want you to treat my pain, oh yeah. Party at your house. When somebody has pain that is more moderate to severe, like a six or a seven to 10, you can increase the opiate by about 50 to 100%. That's not counting transdermal fentanyl, buprenorphine, or methadone, of course. But a linear drug like this, you actually could do that. That makes me a little nervous because, again, I'm a weenie. I would go with C. It's a little bit of a bump up. I would still supplement with short acting. All right, the same opiate, but changing the route. We have a 62-year-old man with multiple myeloma and diffuse bony mets admitted to hospice. He's on extended release oral morphine, 30Q12, an oral morphine solution, 10 milligrams PRM, which he takes six times a day, plus dex for the bone pain. He's been admitted inpatient to switch to IV morphine due to continued pain. So the first question is, and I catch probably 20% of my students with this, when you go from oral morphine to IV morphine, am I going to divide or multiply by three? Who says divide? Who says multiply? Oh, you're all so smart. I'm so proud. So of course, anytime a drug has a different dose, parenteral versus oral, the parenteral is always going to be the lower dose because you're putting the drug right in the systemic circulation. All right, so his total daily dose is 30Q12 is 60, and six times the 10 milligram dose is another 60. It's 120. What would you put him on? Talk to your neighbor. It's got to be parenteral. Okay, had a chance to wrestle with that. So you could do this in your head, couldn't you? You could say 120 milligrams of oral morphine divided by three is going to be 40 milligrams per hour. Or you could set up a ratio like this where you cancel your unit, set up your little choo-choo tracks and cancel everything out. And by golly, it did come out to 40 milligrams a day. I do like to check myself because it's just good practice. Plus, the, pain, the man was in pain. He's being admitted because he's in pain. So I would bump it up a little bit. Now, here's the tricky point. If we were switching from, say, oxycodone to IV morphine, I would do the math, do the equivalency, and, set, and think to myself, he's in pain, so I feel the need to bump it up. But when you switch from one opioid to a different molecular entity, even though you do the math correctly, they will be more sensitive to that new drug. So you don't have to increase it as well. But here, we're going from morphine to morphine. The only difference is the bioavailability, which is why we would feel the need to increase it. So I would go 25 to 50%, which would be 7.5 or 10 milligrams IVQ4 for an increased total daily dose. Here we have an 82-year-old woman with severe osteoarthritis of the knee. She's been receiving morphine 5 milligrams POQ4 during waking hours for the past several years. Unfortunately, she suffered a stroke recently and she can't swallow the tablets or even the oral solution. Her physician wants to switch her to rectal morphine suppositories, which come 5, 10, 20, and 30. What do you recommend? Here are your four choices. Talk to your neighbor and pick your best answer. And yes, you could probably cut it in half. All right, what do you think? Who, who would like to tell me the answer? 
So what information do you need to know about the pharmacokinetics of rectal morphine so you can answer this? The bioavailability is equal to oral. The other piece of information you need to know, and I'll tell you why in a second, is the duration of action. Well, with rectal morphine, it's the same as oral morphine. It's about four hours. And the reason that's an important question, it seems so straightforward, is interestingly, the three milligram hydromorphone rectal suppository, while the bioavailability is equal to oral, it actually lasts six hours. I got nothing. I have no idea what it is. Obviously, it's probably the base having it last a little bit longer. So in this case, the answer would be C, five milligrams per rectum, Q4, during waking hours. Here we have poor Mrs. Clater, a 62-year-old woman with pancreatic cancer. Her pain is well controlled, but she's unable to swallow the long-acting morphine. Holy moly, 200 milligrams Q12, or even the oral morphine solution, 40 Q3, and she uses about one dose a day. Her physician would like to switch her to a parenteral sub-Q morphine infusion. Why don't you talk to the person next to you and wrestle with that one for 30 seconds? I remember guesstimation is your friend. Anybody have any bright ideas? I see a lot of conversation. Okay, so let's take a look. This is the equation I usually use when I actually put pencil to paper and I'm trying to figure it out. Everything on the left side of the equation is real-time data. And as you can see here, in the numerator on both sides, I have the same opioid by the same route or delivery system. And then in the denominator on both sides, I have the same opioid and the same route of administration, which clearly could be different from the numerator. And as you can see, everything on the left is real data. So in the denominator is what the patient's currently on, which is, did everybody get 440 a day of oral morphine? And the numerator is what I'm solving for, X. That's my unknown. On the right, everything from the right comes to the chart. So if on the left, I'm solving for how many milligrams of sub-Q, which is parenteral morphine, I know from my chart, 10 milligrams of sub-Q morphine goes in the top. In my bottom, I have oral morphine. So on the right-hand side, I put 30. And I look at that and say, that makes sense because I know 10 milligrams of parenteral morphine is about equivalent to 30 milligrams. Now you're looking at that saying, you know what? My life would be so awesome if that 440 was 450, wouldn't it? Because 450 divides by three so nicely. My, but three into 440 goes once with 14, 14. Oh my God, I gotta go with the 12. I got two left over 20. Oh my Lord, if it had been 21. No, you've been a pain in the butt all along the way. But in your mind, you can say 450. 450 divided by three is what? 150. 150 divided by 24 is what? about six. So you can look at this and kind of say, you know, this should work out to about that. So then you go ahead and do the math, cross multiply, 30x is 10 times 440, works out to 146.7 milligrams a day. You divide by 24 hours, it comes out to about 6.1. You could do six milligrams an hour. I round it down because I think the parenteral will be more efficient and over the next several hours or so, we could just rely on our bolus and we could give a clinician bolus, for example. And what would you give as a bolus? If we're gonna do a continuous infusion, this is a patient with an advanced illness, not a PCA post-op or anything, what would you give as the bolus and how do you calculate that? What do you think? Dr. Wheeler, what would you do here? It's so painful when I know your name, isn't it? He's going to go five. How often? How often? Two, every two hours? 
Okay, you, you could do that. If they're in steady state, you absolutely could do that. Generally, I say the bolus should be anywhere from 50 to even 150% of the hourly infusion. I have here 50 to 100%. It depends on what I'm switching from. If I'm switching from somebody who was, I mean, I've seen ridiculous things like somebody coming into our hospital on 300 mics of transdermal fentanyl and they literally weigh 70 pounds. Holy cow, what am I supposed to do with that? 300 mics of transdermal fentanyl is 600 milligrams of oral morphine, which would be 200 of parenteral morphine, which would be about 8, 9, 10 milligrams an hour. Am I going to do that? Of course not. I would probably cut it down to like 2 milligrams an hour, and I would be crazy generous with the bolus and then figure it out over the next 12 hours or so. If the route of administration is sub-Q and the patient is not at steady state, and I'm not quite sure where I'm going, I usually offer that every 30 minutes. If it's IV, I generally offer it every 15. This is for a chronic pain patient or an advanced illness patient. Now here's the big question. When should the continuous infusion start relative to the patient choking down that last dose of a long-acting morphine tablet? Should it be take one last dose of the long-acting and start the infusion at the same time? Should we take one last dose of the long-acting and start the infusion 8 to 12 hours later? Or should we start the infusion and then take one last long-acting 6 to 8 hours later? Who thinks it's A? Who thinks it's B? Who thinks it's C? And the rest of you what? Don't think. What's with that? Well, it's kind of a trick question. I mean, really, the, the correct answer would be B, but if this patient was in pain, I would be tempted to maybe do A, but maybe start the infusion at a lower rate. So if the patient came in by ambulance and they said they just took their, their long-acting morphine an hour and a half ago, I might get the IV rolling and start it at a much lower rate, maybe even KVO, the lowest the pump will do, but give them the full bolus option, and then you know ratchet it up as I need to, as clinically indicated. All right, how about let's really go crazy and just change opioids entirely, regardless of the route and the formulation. Here we have a 92-year-old woman with breast cancer, currently on long-acting morphine, 60Q12, plus oral morphine solution, 20Q4, taking about three a day. She's been on this dose for about two weeks, and her pain control is very nice, but she's developed visual hallucinations, which she finds quite frightening. She has significant renal impairment, serum creatinine of two, and this adverse effect may be due to accumulation of the morphine metabolites. Her physician would like to switch her to long-acting oxycodone. Should have gone right to methadone, but hey, they didn't call me. What are the steps necessary to make this conversion? Conversion. Well, of course, we're going to assess her pain, we're going to calculate the total daily dose, and we're going to set up her conversion ratio. So there's the equation, and as you see right below that, we're solving for X milligrams of oral oxycodone over, she's getting 180 milligrams of oral morphine, and if you look at the chart, 20 of oral oxycodone is about 30 of oral morphine. You cross-multiply, solve, and X comes out to 120. But before you scamper off, to put the 120 back in the numerator and look at it. 120 over 180, is that equal to 20? 20 over 30, so 12 divided by 18, by golly, it is two-thirds. So it's a self-check. Very important to do that. So now here's where we get to the point where we have switched from morphine to oxycodone. We have switched from one molecular entity to a new one. So remember I told you in the beginning, when you calculate that number, at 120 we have, we could do one of three things. We could go with the 120, we could increase it, or we could decrease it. So what's the sitch? Her pain was well controlled, but she was having an adverse effect. So because we're switching and it was not a pain issue, we should reduce by about 25 to 50%. If she, um, so we calculated 120, I would reduce it to about 60 or 90 a day. Decide how many times a day you're going to administer it and then go ahead and do the math. My preference would be to go to the 60 milligram oxycodone and I would use short acting if I had a preference. I would probably do oxycodone 10 milligrams Q4 around the clock with either 5 or 10 Q2 PRN in between to see where we needed to be and within 24 hours to 48 at the most, I can get it all sorted out. Would it be wrong to go to OxyContin 30 Q12 or OxyContin Q12? 
No. Um, it would be fine, but again, I would like to be um, a little more cautious. All right, transdermal fentanyl. 62-year-old cancer pain patient who's unable to swallow tablets or oral solution. He says, no way to rectal, and he's not interested in parenteral. He's getting long-acting morphine, 30Q8, with oral morphine solution, 10Q3, taking about four doses a day. His pain is well-controlled. What do you need to consider before converting him to transdermal fentanyl? I've heard about three or four times at this meeting about surgeons using transdermal fentanyl postoperatively in opioid-naive patients. What do you think about that, Richard? Richard says he's scared. I'm scared, too. And, and I was talking to a young pharmacist. He said, what should I tell the surgeons? I would say, this is legally indefensible. And I hope you look good in orange. Because if the patient dies, <laughs> yeah, bye. Good luck with that. So what do we have to consider? Opioid tolerance. Body habitus. We do know that people who are very cachectic don't get the bang for the buck from transdermal fentanyl you would expect. And we're not quite sure why that is. Whether it's an absorption phenomenon, I kind of wonder if it's the fentanyl gets absorbed, looks around, and sees they got no place to hang and just gets out of dodge. Um, it's like, well, they weigh 70 pounds. I got nothing here. I'm leaving. Um, fever, obviously. I mean, I've read case reports of people who put the transdermal fentanyl on their back, they get in their car, they, they heat up their seats, and before you know it, they die. Um, pain intensity and stability. I'm okay switching to the patch if the pain is severe, but if the pain is unstable, you cannot chase a changing pain picture with a delivery system that takes days to get to steady state. So how do you do this conversion? Assess your pain, decide the patient's a good candidate. Um, now, just because I said cachexic, this does not include slim patients, like the young lady up here who weighs 13 pounds. Is that about right? Oh my God, I have sneakers that weigh more than you. <laughs> She's very slim, but she's not cachectic. I don't know who she is, but I don't like her. Anyway, <laughs> I think I ate her for lunch, but anyway. <laughs> this patient is on 130 milligrams a day of oral morphine. So if you look at the guidelines from, like, Janssen, who was the uh, innovator, Duragesic product, and, of course, we have many generics now, they're far more conservative than what we use in clinical practice. So I use the Breitbart method, which is you take the total daily dose of oromorphine, cut it in half, and that's your mics per hour um, patch. So, I mean, I can show you the math actually con convincing you because fentanyl is about 100 times more potent than morphine. So if you do the math out, it actually works out that 60 milligrams a day of oromorphine is about 25 mics per hour of fentanyl, but it would be so much easier to just say it's half or it's double. So 130, half of that would be 65. I would never in my life do a 50 plus a 12. That's just silly. I, and I always round down to be more conservative because this is far more aggressive than what the manufacturer recommended. So in this case, I would go to transdermal 50, Q3 days. Um, how about the timing here? What a, when, if the patient can take one more long-acting morphine, when do you put on the patch relative to taking that last long-acting morphine tablet? Same time, exactly, because that last long-acting morphine is going to work 8 to 12 hours, and meanwhile, the patch is starting to kick in. You get to pseudo-steady state at about 17 hours. If they were on a short-acting opioid reg scheduled regularly, I would have them go ahead and take two or three doses. All right, so here we have a 91-year-old woman with an end-stage malignancy. She's been on transdermal fentanyl, 50 mics every three days. Her pain progressed, and the fentanyl was increased to 75, and then the very next day to 100. Unfortunately, the recent dosage increases did not appreciably result in pain relief. She is 5'4 and weighs 78 pounds. She's hypotensive and bedbound. She can swallow tablets and capsules, and the physician would like to switch her to oral long-acting oxycodone. What are you going to do? Talk to the person next to you. I'll give you 30 seconds. Of course, you're going to call a good-looking pharmacist, aren't you? I mean, that goes without saying.
So what are your concerns in this case? Yeah. So can you really trust that she's getting what she should get from transdermal fentanyl 100? So which one do you go off of? Where do you base your calculations? I, I based it off the last one she responded to. So obviously transdermal fentanyl 100 would technically be equal to 200 of oral morphine, but I don't trust that. She really hasn't had a response since we started, got, had her on the 50 mic, which would be 100 milligrams. And then if you set up the whole equation, I'm doing the two-thirds rule in my head here, 100 of morphine is about 66 of oxycodone. Um, so you could, again, start with the long-acting oxy 30. I probably would go down to the oxycontin 20 Q12. My preference would be the last bullet. Let's go with the immediate release for 24, 48 hours and see where we stand. Uh, and I probably would take off the patch and wait at least 12 hours before I would start the long acting if I switched to long acting. All right, here's case nine. AL is a 62-year-old man with a history of prostate cancer admitted to the hospital for a course of palliative radiation. He's on transdermal fentanyl 50 mics an hour and you've been asked to switch him to a continuous infusion. How do we do that? What's, what's the scoop? What's the equivalency between transdermal and perenteral fentanyl? It's the same because you've got to admit, unless you're goofy and you chew your transdermal fentanyl patch, and we know they're out there, they are among us. That is also, I mean, it's not an enteral delivery system, or at least it's not intended to be. So technically, it is kind of a perenteral. So it is the same. He also has oral morphine, 15Q2 for breakthrough, and he's not in pain at this time. So what would you do here? So if he's on 50 mics an hour, he's not cachectic, he's not wasted, everything's great, his pain's controlled. Obviously, you want to end up on perenteral fentanyl 50 mics an hour. How do we do that switcheroo? Anybody want to share the love on that, how we do that? The timing? Nobody wants to take a stab at that. Well, here's what I would recommend. Obviously, he's in a hospital, so we have eyes on him 24-7. At time zero, take off the patch, and I would establish IV access. I would provide the bolus option right out of the gate, uh, which would be fentanyl 25 mics every 20 minutes only for the first six hours. At six hours, I would start half of the continuous infusion, which would be 25. And then at 12 hours, I would go up to the full replacement, which would be 50 mics an hour. If we were doing this with oral or we were doing it at home, I would take twice as long. I would do the 12 hours and then the 24. So here we have back at the ranch with AL, our 62-year-old man with prostate cancer admitted for palliative radiation. He's completed his course and he's ready to go home. His current fentanyl infusion is 70 mics an hour and he's only used his 35 mic bolus once in the past 24 hours. He would like to resume transdermal fentanyl therapy. What do you suggest now? What patch strength would you go with? I would go with the 75. It's, I mean, it's pretty darn close. Now, again, we just reverse our timing. So at 8 a.m., I would put on the patch and continue the infusion, the continuous infusion, and the bolus. At 2 p.m., which is six hours later, I would cut the infusion to half and just use the bolus and continue the bolus. And at 8 o'clock, I would stop the infusion, and hopefully the patch, enough of it is kicked in, along with the bolus to keep him going well. And then at 8 a.m., you're 24 hours in, you're pretty much, you're definitely at pseudo-steady state. You can just, just stop the infusion and send him home. All right, let's look at case 11. E.T. is a 68-year-old woman with severe osteoarthritis of the hips and knees for which she takes acetaminophen and a non-steroidal. This therapy has not adequately reduced her pain, and she continues to complain of dyspepsia from the non-steroidal. She also complains that taking medicine multiple times per day makes her feel like a druggie, and she hates the reminder of her pain. She heard about a pain patch that was new on the market. What is she referring to, and what do you recommend? 
So the latest one, of course, is transdermal buprenorphine, which is an every seven-day patch. This is approved for moderate to chronic, severe chronic pain, where you need continuous opioid therapy, and it does come in five different strengths. The important difference here is you can start transdermal buprenorphine in an opioid-naive patient, but you don't want to increase it for at least 72 hours. So let's look at an application of this. JK is a 64-year-old man with cervical and lumbar back pain that is fairly responsive to oxycodone and acetaminophen 5325, taking about six tablets a day when he remembers to take them. When he gets busy and forgets to take his analgesic, the pain overwhelms him and he has to stop everything and lie down. His neighbor, ET from case 11, told him about this awesome new pain patch called Butrans that works so well for her, so he wants to know if he can switch to this as well. Don't you love it when the neighbor prescribes? Okay, so again, we know what it's indicated for. You certainly can use it for osteoarthritis, low back pain. It's a C3. The advantages over transdermal fentanyl, I, I actually like buprenorphine as a drug in this situation better than fentanyl. I think it has a lot of advantages. Um, of course, we always have the contraindications and the precautions that we have to worry about as well. Uh, each patch is made to be worn for a week. You can apply it to the upper outer arm, upper chest, upper back or the side of the chest, and then don't reuse that site for 21 days. In opioid-naive patients, the initial dose should always be five mics an hour. And when you're doing the conversion, um, you have to look at this little chart here. If it's less than 30 milligram oral morphine equivalent, you still start at the lowest dose. If they're on 30 to 80, you, you get, you titrate, you're supposed to titrate down until they're on the equivalent of 30 milligrams oral morphine equivalent, and then go to the 10 mic patch. And they say if they're on more than 80 milligrams of oral morphine, you shouldn't even be thinking about transdermal buprenorphine. I would argue that this is a very, it's a very conservative drug delivery system. When you consider that buprenorphine and fentanyl are almost equally potent, buprenorphine is maybe a hair less potent than fentanyl, and we have the buprenorphine patch anywhere from 5 to 20 mics an hour, whereas fentanyl we have anywhere from 12 to 100. So I think this is a very conservative drug delivery system, and clearly you can only go so far with this. All right, here we have a 58-year-old woman with chronic pain receiving oxycodone, sustained release, 15 milligrams POQ12. She tells you she just doesn't want to take opioids anymore, and she just wants to stop it. What are your thoughts on that? So let's just stop 30 milligrams of oxycodone a day cold turkey. What do you think? Yeah, she might get a little bit of a headache there, Think you thinking? What do you think? What are her symptoms likely to be if she stops it cold? Yeah, it's like the super flu, isn't it? You know, nausea, sweating, lacrimation, rhinorrhea. I mean, if you want to look at a scale, it's either the sows or the cows scale. I mean, we use it generally for people who are abusing opioids. So what would you do in this case? You, you want to be careful here. So she's getting 30 a day, which is about equivalent to 45 of morphine. I would reduce it to probably 20 milligrams a day over the next week, and certainly supplement with non-opioids is appropriate. And you could switch to the Butrans once you do that. So if she's willing to do that, that's fine. Otherwise, you could keep reducing down. So let's review. Let's see who's been awake in our postprandial lecture here. True or false? Opioid-naive patients may start transdermal fentanyl or buprenorphine as their first opioid. Why is that false? because you can't do fentanyl, absolutely. That is so important. As a matter of fact, another little story, I love my stories. At our hospice, we have a rule that if a patient is admitted to our program on either transdermal fentanyl or on methadone, the admission nurse has to ask, how long have you been on that and, and at this dose, most importantly? And if it, the answer is less than a week, the admission nurse has to find out what were they on before they were switched to either transdermal fentanyl or methadone to make sure the math was done correctly. They call me or the medical director or whatever. Because years ago, I was asked to 
the, the drug expert in a legal case, which I never do because I hate those. Um, and it was a case of a lady who was very close to death. And the husband begged the doctor to admit her and try to pull a Hail Mary move. And the doctor agreed, brought her in. He looked at her. Another doctor looked at her. Um, and the patient was opiate. They gave her, I think, two injections of IV morphine because she was starting to get uncomfortable. And finally, they said to the husband, look, dude, she is like knocking on heaven's door here. She is like on the bus, one foot on a banana peel, the other in the, in the grave. So they, they admitted her to the hospital's inpatient hospice unit and put a 25 mic patch on her. 18 hours later, she died. Now, I personally am of the opinion that people relax enough to finally die. And, but unfortunately, that's kind of where we hit pseudo steady state. So they asked me what I'd be, the, so the husband sued both physicians, the hospital and the hospice for wrongful death. And this was like a multi-million dollar lawsuit. It made me ill thinking about the waste from this case. And I said, well, I don't think you want me being your drug expert because that was against package labeling. So just like Richard's nervous with transdermal fentanyl postoperatively, I'm nervous about those. So my point is, if somebody had done an incorrect calculation to transdermal fentanyl or to methadone and then said, bye, have a good life, you're going home to hospice of the example, and it's my hospice and the math was done wrong and they die on our watch, we're going up the river too. All right, B, 20 milligrams of oral morphine is equivalent to 60 milligrams a day of parenteral morphine. True or false? False. It's the other way around. Oral morphine is more potent than oral oxycodone. False. Exactly, because 20 of oxy is 30 of morphine. Exalgo is dosed once a day. That is true. So my final thoughts, I think we should always remain alert for clinical scenarios that may indicate opioid switching should be recommended. We always have to understand and consider the principles of opioid responsiveness, potency, equivalence, and bioavailability. Follow the approved labeling for switching <coughs> in opioid-tolerant patients, although I'm a little more aggressive with the fentanyl. Use the five-step process. Please use a fair, balanced, equi-analgesic dosing chart, but understand the limitations. Consider the timing. Document your interventions and educate your pants off with all other providers. What questions do you have or comments? Yes, nice and loud. Okay, I heard 12 mic patch. What else? 12 microgram fentanyl patch to Butrans? Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. She's switching from 12 mics per hour of transdermal fentanyl and she wants to go to butrans. I probably would take the patch off and wait at least 24 hours and then I would probably start with the 5 mic butrans patch and be liberal with breakthrough all along the way. Yes. The switching? I got a whole talk with tomorrow called methadone and marijuana, my friend. Are you going to be here tomorrow? Okay. Well, I'm going to keep you on the edge of your seat until tomorrow then. <laughs> my friend who's aggressive in the back? My favorite person? What about the Q3 day interval for transdermal fentanyl? It's interesting. When the FDA looked at the data of how long a transdermal fentanyl patch lasts, it went anywhere from one to five days. So they were, they were looking at that saying, you know what? I'm liking three. Boom. Let's go Q3 day. That's about how scientific it was. We do know that about 20% of people can't last 72 hours. So if your patient is clearly telling you, oh, my God, that third day I want to poke my eyeballs out, and they're using a lot of breakthrough, go to Q48. Absolutely. Definitely. And the lady behind you. Can you go from a butrans patch to sublingual? Probably, but I've never done that. Has anybody done that? Yeah, and how did that work for you? Well, you know, you have to take it down to the 
Uh-huh. And how long do you wait after taking off the patch? About three days. So she says she tapers down on the butrans, waits, takes it off, waits three days, and starts low dose with the sublingual. Uh, somebody else? Anybody else? Okay. Yeah, the sublingual. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for your attention. I appreciate it.